You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This is the day the world changes. It's 21 Shaban, year 1422 after the Hijra, or as the International Trade Calendar would have it, November 9th, 2001. Sunrise in Baghdad is at 625, and as the first rays strike the Tigris and Euphrates Twin Towers, an old man stands in the main dining room of the Windows on the World restaurant, gazing out at the city. The morning commute is well underway, cars streaming in along the expressways from Fallujah, Samara, Bakuba, and Karbala. Across the Tigris, the 630 Basra Limited loops around the Old World's fairgrounds and runs briefly parallel to the Sadr City L before both trains plunge underground into the central station. There's traffic on the river, too. Passenger and cargo barges, water taxis, the racing shells of the Baghdad U rowing team, the hydrofoil ferry from Coote. Looking down at it all, the old man feels a sense of vertigo that has nothing to do with fear of heights. He tells himself it's the motion, the city's ceaseless motion, which the rush hour only amplifies. The old man grew up in Yemen. His family owned a bakery, and he and his brothers all worked there. It was hard work, long hours, but every day, five times a day, everything stopped, employees and customers alike stepping out to go to mosque, leaving only a Christian behind to mind the ovens. It wasn't just the town's businesses that shut down. A witness viewing that landscape from above would have seen the roads empty too, even long-distance travelers pulling over to pray. Matt Ruff is the author of Fool on the Hill, the Public Works Trilogy, Sewer, Gas, and Electric, Set This House in Order, and Bad Monkeys. His new novel is The Mirage. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is an immaculately conceived novel and very strange. Um, I think one of the things that you do well is because the the conceit behind the novel is uh, it leaves you vulnerable to um, being uh, polemic on one side right. or satiric and lightweight on the other. But you do a great job of steering the course and writing a really solid novel that's really involving to read. What made you uh, just come up with the concept for this novel? Why did you decide to write this novel, which in some ways it seems um, almost obvious, I guess, although not the way you execute it? No, I know what you mean, though. Um, Basically, I I think like a lot of, of writers in America, pretty much from the moment the towers came down, I knew I wanted to tell a story about 9-11 and the aftermath of that. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm a mature enough writer to know not to just write out and do the, run out and do the first thing that comes to mind. So I wanted to sort of bide my time until I had a, a really interesting idea. And I also didn't just want to do a minor variation on what other people would be doing. Um, so I just sort of kept my eye on what other storytellers are doing as the, the first stories began to come. And, and one of the things I noticed is, understandably enough, American writers tended to focus on what 9-11 had done to us and, and how we had changed in the wake of that. And that's an important story. And it, again, it, you, can, you can find a lot to say about that. But um, I noticed that the, the people who actually ended up bearing the brunt of the war on terror, the innocents on the ground in places like Afghanistan and Baghdad, you know, people who were not terrorists and not criminals and whose only crime was that they were 
the wrong kind of people at the wrong moment in history, um, they tended to get left out of the, at least the first wave of stories. So part of what I thought I wanted to do was tell a story that, that gave uh, ordinary Iraqis uh, a more central role in things. And um, I, I guess the inspiration came, I, I was asked by a TV producer who was a fan of my earlier work whether I had any ideas for a TV show. And I started thinking about, again, about this idea of doing a 9-11 themed thriller. Um, but I hit on this, this idea of turning the world upside down and, and setting it in a world in which essentially the U.S. and the Middle East had traded places. So the lone superpower is a Muslim democracy called the United Arab States. And North America is broken up into a series of third world uh, dictatorships and Christian theocracies. And 9-11 happens in reverse. And Part of this idea was of turning the world on its head was not just reversing the geopolitical situation, but also um, reversing the casting conventions and the idea of, of who would matter and who the story would really be about. So I can see this notion of a, a story with Arab Muslim protagonists working for Arab homeland security doing pretty much the same thing that the, the American agents in a, a more American-centered story would, would do. And that was just an interesting interesting to me in a number of ways because it, it meant I could also apply this sort of golden rule looking glass on a lot of the stuff that had happened in the U.S. response to 9-11 without ever having to send into a polemic. It's just a matter of, you know, how do you feel about things like regime change, like invading other countries, like some of the violations of civil rights that followed 9-11. Uh, if you were on the receiving end of the war on terror rather than sitting at home and reading about it, maybe feeling bad about the innocents who were caught up in this, but but not you know ever having to worry about it happening to you. And so in this novel, uh, part of part of it is that the the Americans in the novel who are bearing the brunt of the story, they're they're out on the edges of the the novel in the same way that. Arabs are on the edges of the stories that we tend to tell here. It strikes me when you were talking about your, your book that what this might in many ways most uh, resemble is another very famous work of speculative fiction, um, which was War of the Worlds, which H.G. Wells wrote in a sense to say, well, here's what you English might feel like and what you Americans might feel like were you to be on the receiving end of conquest. That's an interesting, huh? I, I, that one has not, no one has suggested that yet, but that's an interesting parallel. To be helpless before the technology and the, and the you know, a culture that we can't comprehend. And moreover, too, one of the things that I was reading this book that really struck me was that almost anything written after 9-11 would seem like some weird form of over-the-top speculative fiction to anybody who would somehow could magically read it before 9-11. So that a, a book like uh, Incredibly Loud, Extremely Loud, Incredibly Loud, if that had come out beforehand, somebody before that those events, it, reading that, it would just seem, well, that's that couldn't happen. That's like complete fantasy. So in a sense, the events of 9-11 were a kind of uh, an element of the fantastic that was introduced into the real world. And I think that you kind of, in using this kind of topsy-turvy world that you create, you do that again in, in, a, in a 
take us back? I mean, I, I do and I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that, you know, what what was striking about 9-11 was not, in, in many ways, I mean, if you'd read about a mass casualty like that happening in some other part of the world, say, you know, somewhere in Asia, you, you would be shocked by it, but you would not be surprised. And I don't think it would threaten your sense of how the world works the way that 9-11 did for so many people. And I think what was unique about 9-11 was that it happened to America. And we had gotten this idea that we were somehow supposed to be immune to that level of of threat and harm. And that's what shook a lot of people's worldviews. And at first you're shocked. And then when you get over the shock, you become enraged. And But even in, in researching the novel, I, I would stumble across things that... that um, there was an early attempt by the CIA, I think sometime in the 1990s, where they tried to get bin Laden. Um, they had recognized he was dangerous, and he was living at that time in Afghanistan under the protection of Mullah Omar. And um, Lawrence Wright in his book, The Looming Tower, talks about this. And basically the CIA asked the Saudi Arabians if they could please get bin Laden back from Mullah Omar and hand him over. And um, the CIA asked the Saudis, and they sent... Uh, a guy over to ask Mullah Omar to please cough up Osama bin Laden because he was he was under Mullah Omar's protection, but he was being a bad guest. He was making a lot of noise and making a lot of people upset. So the Sauds thought, well, you know, he'd probably be happy to be rid of him. And in fact, Mullah Omar just didn't want his reputation harmed by, uh, you know, giving up this man who was supposed to be under his protection. And the Sauds tried to bribe him. They gave him this gift of vehicles, um, SUVs and other, other heavy equipment. And uh, he took the bribe, but he didn't give up bin Laden. But what he then did proceed to do, using this equipment that he'd been given, he conquered one of the last outposts of the Northern Alliance and captured a city called Masari Sharif. And it was a, a Shia city. And once the Taliban got in there, they, they went on a rampage, killing and raping and uh, just behaving in, in a horrible way for two or three days. And nobody really knows how many people were killed, but the, the number that Wright uses, he estimates 6,000, which is an interesting number because it's twice the number of people who died on 9-11. And I remember reading this. I had never heard of this before, and I was really stunned by it. And then Later in the day, I went to tell my wife about it, and I had already forgotten the name of the city. I remember it now, but it just struck me that, you know, you've, you've got this horrible atrocity being committed. Uh, and because it happens in a part of the world where you kind of expect people to get killed all the time, it, you know, I, even I can't be bothered to remember the details for, uh, you know, a couple of hours. And that was what made 9-11 so different and I think what made it seem like a science fiction thing was not that a lot of people got killed because that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. It was that it it happened to people who convinced themselves that they were immune, that they were above that. And um, so part of what I think I was trying to get at in the barrage with this reversal and then within the novel, of course, you have the, the thing that gives the novel its title um, the the American terrorists in the novel claim that the, the world that they're living in is an illusion. And if the real world, America is supposed to be the conquering superpower and they're going to kill Arabs until the world reverses itself the way it's supposed to be. Um, part of what I was getting at there was just this sense of rage that I think we felt or this sense of shock that the world had, we had we'd stumbled into a reality that wasn't wasn't right. 
and we were going to do whatever it took to get back to that. But, and then also through that to maybe get a handle on the question we all asked after 9-11, why do they hate us? Because I suspect that uh, part of what motivated, if not bin Laden himself, at least a lot of the people who volunteered to die for him, um, was the sense that, yes, the Arabs had been unfairly placed on the, and the Muslims had been unfairly placed on the losing end of history and that, um, you know, we had somehow usurped their birthright. So that was that was sort of the, the thing I was trying to get at, and I think that's the sense in which it, you, you get this science fictional element, I guess. You do a fabulous job of world building from the very beginning, and I'd like you to talk about that because it must, for you, uh, how did this occur? Did you design the world beforehand and design the language and the cities and lay out the geopolitical aspects of it, or did you just plunge into the prose and create it one sentence at a time? Well, you know, when I when I originally was was hoping to to do this as a TV series, I wrote a an eleven page treatment, sort of describing the idea behind the story and giving a general description of what the world was like. And what is interesting for me now, going back and looking at that, is how many of the elements of the the finished novel were there right from the first. And I think that. The world building was was actually fell together pretty quickly. Um, again, I once once you have the basic idea that the U.S. and the Middle East have traded places, and then then there was the question: Do I want to create a, a sort of ultra realistic alternate reality where you, you project what changes would would be needed to create a world where Arabia had become the cradle of modern democracy, or do you want to go with a somewhat more fanciful version and I think what what I found was what I was drawn to was the idea of a, a, a the the United Arab States in the novel uh, is meant to represent not so much the Arab democracy that could have been or that might yet be it is the the more fantastic democracy that was promised us by the Bush administration as a as a reason for going to war in Iraq this sort of magical American-style democracy was just going to spring up out of the ashes of Saddam's empire without, you know, any real respect for historical context or the way people are actually motivated to embrace democracy. Um, so right away, I created this somewhat mythological idea of a, a, you know, a Muslim federal constitutional republic with its capital in Riyadh, and Riyadh was going to be sort of the alternate. Washington, D.C., and Baghdad becomes the cultural and financial center, so sort of the shadow New York. And then the 22 states of the Arab League become states as, as in the United States. Um, and then for America, I initially specified that it was going to be broken up into these small countries, and I didn't figure out what they were all going to be until that. That waited until I actually sat down to start working on the novel. But the three most important ones being the Rocky Mountain Independent Territories, which is a sort of a Christian white supremacist riff on Afghanistan. Um, the Evangelical Republic of Texas, which you could think of as sort of a Baptist version of Saudi Arabia. And then what's called the Christian States of America, or the CSA, which is everything east of the Appalachians, and that's the country with that uh, has Washington, D.C. as its capital. And the way the geopolitics work out, the the eleven nine hijackers come from the Rocky Mountain Independent Territories, and they're traveling on Texas passports. So naturally, when 
President Bondar declares a war on terror and decides to invade a country. They end up invading the CSA, the one country that didn't have anything at all to do with uh, the hijackings. Um, and then there were, other, you know, that was, so that was my basic framework. And then there were other things that just naturally came out of that. Like if Israel still exists, but Palestine is taken, where would it be? And um, the answer I, I gravitated towards there was that uh, after, the, after the Arabs beat Hitler in World War II, they, they settle on a two-state solution and give the Jews the northern half of Germany as, as reparations for the Holocaust. And the German Lutherans who are kicked out to make this possible are you know, kind of still mad about that. And the German Catholics who live mostly in the South who've now got to live with these Lutherans are not particularly happy either. Um, and, you know, but the, the good side of that is that the, uh, the Jews and the Muslims are now the best of friends. And because if, once you get rid of the land dispute in Palestine, um, there's really no reason for them to fight one another. And so they, they become allies in the war against terror and they have a common enemy. So, um, so just things like that that just sort of suggested themselves as I was putting it together. And that stuff came fairly quickly. Um, I think the things I, I spent more time working on... Um, were the characters because I knew that I wanted my protagonists to be not just stock characters and not just Americans with funny names. I wanted them to be well-rounded individuals who you could believe in and care about. And that I took more time with and, and, and was a lot more careful with. A lot of the world-building stuff was just a snap, though. So that was, that was all in place fairly, fairly early on. And likewise, the sense of who the more famous characters were going to be and what their roles would be. It was it was the bringing the the you know the more anonymous, more everyday protagonist characters to life that took me longer to do. And, well, that's actually I think what makes the novel so spectacularly successful is that we have a core group of characters who we do really care about, and you build them up well so that they seem. Uh, creations of the world that the, in which they came from, mm -hmm. not just um, imposed from with, without for, by authorial dictate or by, um, as you say, they're not just versions of somebody else. They're, they really grew up. And now I'd like you to talk about creating, you know, the, the three main characters, Mustafa, Amal, and Samir. And, and what's nice is that the structure of the book, I think, also really helps us. So Talk about um, the characters and the structure. Which kind of came first, or how did you work that out? Well, I mean, part of it was I, I, I was sort of riffing off this idea of a, a sort of a classic thriller format. So I knew I, I wanted to have one, you know, somewhat tortured soul to be my the moral center of the novel. So that's Mustafa, and he's the he's the sort of the senior homeland security agent in the story, and. You know, there's sort of a tradition for the protagonist in these kinds of tales to have either a, a girlfriend or a wife who was tragically murdered or a difficult marriage. And because this is a Muslim country and polygamy is legal, I was able to give him both. He has the, the first wife, Fadwa, who he really loves, who dies on 11-9. And then he's got a second wife, Noor, who um, he knows he should not have married. And they become estranged after the, the uh, death of Fadwa. He sort of treats her as a co-conspirator in Fadwa's death, so he's, he sort of takes it out on her. So he becomes estranged from her, but doesn't divorce her. Um, and 
then you've got Amal, who is sort of the spunky new recruit, and uh, her mother, Anmar Almaisani, is the sort of the Rudy Giuliani of this alternate universe. She was mayor of Baghdad on the fatal day, and she was actually not a very good mayor, but um, by becoming a symbol of resistance in the wake of the the, the terrorist attacks, um, she catapults her to national fame, and she becomes a senator. Um, and so Amal is the woman who has to work twice as hard and, you know, to get half the credit. And um, she's also really the character in the story who gets the, the most done. I mean, when you read through, Mustafa is sort of the, the center of the story, but, but Amal is the one who, who does most of the hard work and who saves other people's lives a lot. Um, and then Samir is your, you know, your, your sort of typical... He's the the humorous sidekick, but he's got a a secret, um, which I I don't know if we should spoil that, but... um, Let's not. Okay. Um, So that was was sort of this trio to sort of start out with. And then, um, obviously, the part of the fun of doing a story like this is also having real-life people wander in, real-life celebrities. And my rule with that was that the... The general moral character of people would not change, um, but their job descriptions obviously would, as this different world offered them different opportunities. So, you have a lot of fun. One of the things I think you yeah. do amazingly well is to take characters who um, are could be uh, flashpoints or seem um, cliche, but you do a great job making them fully rounded and really kind of likable, even though they're not great guys. And I'm thinking now of Saddam Hussein, who I think you just do a fabulous job with him. There's a bit of Jimmy Hoffa in him. Well, yeah, he's sort of the, he's the, Obviously, you can't be a dictator because they're, they're, that, that is not a job you can have in the democratic state of Iraq. So um, he becomes a, a labor organizer and racketeer. I mean, he's basically he's, he's a, a Al Capone slash John Gotti type underworld figure. Um, and that, that's, that's sort of an actually an obvious thing that I think a lot of – I've seen a number of um, – real-life biopics of Saddam that basically take that, that that's the closest analog we have to what – Middle Eastern dictators are is that they're like mobsters, but incredibly powerful because they have whole countries under their control rather than, you know, some small racket. So it was actually kind of an obvious choice to make him a a, a gangster of some sort. So I made the Bath Labor Party into the Bath Labor Union, and um, he and because the the Arab war on drugs is a war on alcohol, then he becomes a bootlegger as well. So he smuggles alcohol into the country and um and he's and because the real life saddam uh, fancied himself a writer i made my saddam sort of a a novelist and he writes these these crime novels that are thinly veiled versions of his his own exploits and the baghdad da keeps trying to you know prosecute him based on you know you wrote this novel with this Description of this murder that sounds suspiciously similar to this actual murder and includes details that only the killer would know. And um, and he keeps getting acquitted because everyone's afraid of him. So, But at the same time, he feels, he senses that he was meant somehow for greater things. So as as Mustafa and the others begin you know, exploring this legend of the mirage, that there's this other reality, um, they find that Saddam has been collecting artifacts from that other reality because, of course, he, he wants to go back and be a dictator. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's Osama bin Laden, of course, who 
it, it just seemed to me to make sense since he was a rich man's son with connections to the Saudi royal family. In this universe, he becomes a war hero and a politician. He becomes the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And outwardly, I guess my analog would sort of be like an Ollie North character if Ollie North had a lot more power. Um, this guy who's, who's seen as a hero by many people, but he's corrupted and, and behind the scenes is actually working against his own government. And, um, and of course, Al-Qaeda becomes a clandestine government agency that's supposed to be fighting terrorism, but they too have, have gone off the reservation and they're working as bin Laden's private army. Um, and all these things were just, you know, a question of thinking, okay, if, if you had these people who were basically just as wicked in this world as in our world, but had these different opportunities, how would they go about exploiting that, that you know, how would they go about expressing their, their basic nature? And Another question I had to deal with was, you know, Saddam, it made sense that you, he, he's a very easy character to write once you get in his head. And, and so I knew I would have a lot of time with him actually on stage talking, interacting with the characters. For bin Laden, my instinct from the very first was that he was somebody who would remain in the background for the most part. So I created a fictional uh, Al-Qaeda guy named Idris Abdel Kahar, who's sort of the the guy who actually interacts and threatens the characters and, and does most of the talking. And while bin Laden is more of a presence who's referred to in the background pulling the strings. And so he does not actually appear in the novel physically until very near the end, and he only speaks once. And that, that to me, just made sense again because it, it matched... Um, the way we tended to perceive, you know, Bin Laden, that he was he was more this scary presence in the you know, hiding out in the cave somewhere or in a mansion, as the case may be, rather than, um, and you know, it would have been possible to do it another way and and try to get inside his head and write him as a character, but I I I just I don't know I I felt better leaving him in the in the scary shadows so. Um, and then there are, uh, when Mustafa and the others eventually travel to America, of course, they've got various people in the Bush administration. Um, and in most cases there, my, my decision was not to be, you'll know, you'll know them when you meet them, but they are generally not named. They're, they're just hinted at. So Dick Cheney puts an appearance, but I never call him by his name. And Bush has a cameo. Um, and part of that was just the sense that because in this flipped universe, Americans were less important, it, it seemed right to me that they, they would sort of, part of their punishment or their fate would be that they were, they were not important enough that I had to be very explicit about who they were. And, and part of it because I felt that there'd been a lot of explicit satire of Cheney and Bush that was really hammer heavy. I also thought subtlety was called for. And, and uh, so that's why I did things that way. Subtlety is a big reason that this book works so well. I think between the subtlety and and also, <clears throat> for me, just at a prose level and the detail level, the way um, we talked a little bit about the world building on the big scale, but it's on the little scale and the way you write your sentences, the way you pace the paragraphs, the dialogue, um, and the small details that show up – I mean, this just seems like there must be like 10 books of notes and research to go with this to put in all the small details, the way the names were, are created, the way the places are described. How did you uh, wrap your brain around that? Because when I read this book, I am in this world. Well, part of that is just I'm, 
I'm a little obsessive. I'm very good at, and I discovered this early on in my career, it's just I have a knack for keeping lots of complicated plot details straight and conveying them in a way that, that in, you know, hopefully readers can follow. So I actually don't, I don't do outlines. I don't take a lot of notes. My assumption being that if, if I have to use notes I, you know, to, to keep it straight, then the readers are never going to be able to follow it. But I, when I'm in the, you know, in the process of writing, especially as I get towards the end of the book, I just, I'm able to retain that information and keep it straight in my own head. And I'm very meticulous, especially during the copy editing. Um, so yeah, I did, I did, a lot of reading about the, just the general history of the region and then about the personalities involved so that I would know how far I was departing from reality. And then it, it, for me, it's, it's more about getting to a point where I can intuit what specific people would do and say in a given moment and what they wouldn't. And at that point, you don't need notes anymore. You just know, okay, Saddam is in the scene. This is what he would say. This is how he would threaten you without ever raising his voice. Um, and, yeah, and a lot of that is just, you know, an intuitive sense of how things should go. And I've, I've obviously, I mean, I've been, been writing my whole life, so by this point it's, I've got a lot of practice. And, and as I've, I've gotten more mature as a writer, I've just learned that subtlety and dealing with things matter-of-factly is actually much more effective and powerful a lot of the time than, than going with a sledgehammer. And, and I've got a good sense of exactly how explicit I need to be about stuff and when to trust the readers to pick up on subtlety. Now, one of the the joys of this book is the, the various, the plot in its many forms because we have the kind of action-oriented plot with, uh, you know, looking for these terrorists and trying to figure out what the mirage is. But there's also, I think, a plot by revelation in terms of once we enter this world, uh, we're drawn forward in a, in a plottish manner, as it were, to just find out the aspects of this world and find out all the details. And you do a good job at weaving those two um, kinds of plot together and making them kind of integral to one another. Well, I, I mean, I think you that that's, you know, you get a lot more richness with that sort of hybrid thing. I mean, and, and you, you will you will occasionally encounter readers who have a problem with one or the other who feel that they, they you know, they like the, the, the plot more or they don't like the plotting parts. They'll get annoyed that, well, there's too much action. This should be a more thoughtful thing. But for me, the it's those two aspects working together where you... You have people wanting to turn pages to see what happens next, but then you also have enough richness that it's not just a, a simple A to B to C. Um, I find when you can combine that, and then again with with trying to get characters, there's something more than just your. I mean, you could you could do this story with stock characters, and I think it would still work very well. But it's more fun to try and balance that with uh, uh, character portraits and, um, you know pauses to think about other things and and uh, and it's it's you could say the same thing i think about the hybridization of genres that i i love taking tropes from you know all sorts of places fantasy science fiction um you know detective thriller literary it, it, it all i think i think hybrids work better and are more interesting than just doing one straight thing 
this certainly partakes of a variety of genres, but to its credit, it never seems like that. You never feel like, okay, here comes this part or this aspect. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, the the nature of the world lent itself to slowly becoming somewhat more more mystical. And, you know, it starts off very slowly, but as it goes along, yes, there are, you know, portents and visions and dreams. And um, thematically, that just made sense. Um, and obviously, I do have to at some point explain what, what where this mirage legend came from and what the answer is. Well, that's actually, you know, as I was reading, I'm wondering, is he going to? And actually, because because it's so immersive, mm-hmm. you know, and the story within this place is so immersive, you know, within this world is so immersive. You think, well, this is great. I can just go with these characters, you know, the the CSI alternate Baghdad <laughs> or, or, or Law and Order alternate Baghdad. You know, it's good. that's kind of nice. But the way that you weave this in is not only interesting it's fun i i i just you know it's 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 basically writing the kind of stuff you like to read and i like stories that make you think but are also a lot of fun and balance that enough that you know that that there's a certain balance i like to have and that i like to write and um and yes i mean uh, the other thing being of course that yes if if you're going to write about 911 it's very easy to veer off into uh, I, I I tend to do this. I pick subjects that, that I know the independent booksellers are going to have a hard time because it's going to sound like this is going to be kind of a downer. Like my third novel, Set This House in Order, is about uh, two people with multiple personality disorder. And I think for a lot of people, you first hear that, you're like, oh, so it's a book all about child abuse. I don't know if I want to read that. And in fact, it's not. It's it's Or it... it, it that enters into it, but it's a it's a more optimistic and cheerful book than you would expect, given that that is part of the story. And I, I think here with the Mirage too, there was a sense of, um, you know, it's a nine eleven novel, and I know there are probably a lot of people who at this point really could happily not read anything else about that particular subject again. And I completely understand that, but at the same time, I knew that if if I were writing the story, I could do it in a way that would not be horribly depressing and not be hopefully not be exploitative and just just be a yes a ripping yarn about very serious subjects and i think it's it's possible to do that and be respectful and i I, again i seem to have a knack for finding the acceptable levity within even really grim situations like recognizing the absurdity even at the worst moments and the the sort of optimistic humor in the in the worst moments that makes it possible to deal with really dark subject matter in a way that's not horribly depressing or off-putting and um so yeah i that was what i was shooting for and I, i'm glad that it, it seems to have worked at least for you you give us an an introduction to the world the way the book is structured you give us an introduction to the world and then you give us kind of a really nice setup for each of the characters and i think that the that really is a key part for me in the novel for really enjoying it i really liked how you did that and i'm wondering when you were uh crafting this novel did you have a sense of you know that kind of pacing cuz it's it's an unusual tact for a, for a thriller to take I knew that I I needed to tell, uh, you know, the basic backstories for all three characters. And 
part of part of the way the setting works is you know you've got to you know you you first got to get people invested in the story and then at that point there there is a, a point where you have time where you can pause and and fill in and and talk a bit more about who people are so the the structure just made sense to me that that was the way I would do it. Yes, introduce the the world first, get people used to it, get them interested in what's going to happen next, and then find a way to talk about Mustafa and Amal and Samir's backstories in a way that that advances the plot while still being yeah somewhat of a departure from the usual. Now we must do this, and now we must do this, and so it's it's a way. So yeah, that that just struck me as the right way to do it. Um, and that was that was probably the part that I wrestled with the longest was just making that fit in the you know at the right length and and finding the the way to talk about them that worked and once I had that down I I knew the book was going to work the way I wanted it to and then it was just a matter of okay now you know the world now you know who they are now let me tell you how it ends and and from there it just sort of you reach the halfway point and it just sort of speeds up towards the the finale and. Um, yeah, that, that structure was pretty apparent to me from the beginning. It was just a matter of, of getting it to work the way I wanted it to. Talk about doing the kind of reading you need to do for this and without being, you know, so you can turn, you're reading nonfiction, you're turning around, I, I presume, did you read any fiction to do this? Um, did you just go out on Wikipedia? Did you travel to the Middle East? <laughs> um, no, it would, it, it would have been interesting if I could have traveled to the Middle East, but the only the only travels I did there were on Google Earth, which is the the best way to go to Sadr City without needing a flak jacket. Um, no, I, I I mean I was obviously again I was obviously helped by the fact that I wasn't trying to be uh, create an ultra realistic portrait. I was I was in a sense creating a not just an alternate reality, but a, a somewhat fantastical one. So. Um, that that gave me a little more wiggle room in terms of feeling comfortable with with what counted as as verisimilitude and and what you know went too far. You say this is a fantastic re- reality. I, I would kind of disagree. One of the things I really liked about it is it seemed very gritty to me. Other than the assumptions you make to get get us there, once we're there, I was totally there. I didn't. Oh, I mean, I know what you mean. The mm-hmm. feel of it is certainly yes. The 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 actual feel of the novel, I hope, is very realistic. What I what I mean is that. Someone who's who has a, a a grounding in actual Middle East history. There are just certain things that that I could see them easily tearing their hair out about. That that, <laughs> the, for example, the origin story of the United Arab States, which was one of the first things I wrote, um, uh, where it talks about you know the the Arab League breaking away from the the Ottoman Empire and and forming this um, federal constitutional republic with thirteen states. Well. It, it it's obvious why I did that, but of course, uh, uh, someone familiar with the history of the region would immediately point out that these states that you're talking about, like Iraq, uh, didn't exist at the time that this this country was supposedly coming into being. And um, I knew that, but I also knew that for the vast majority of Americans reading it, even if they were sort of aware that you know that that uh, Iraq and other countries had come into being, like much later than in you know than than the states of America um, the history of the Middle East is still vague enough to most of us that it, it you you might recognize that this is this is somewhat fantastic but at the same time it, it doesn't affront your sense of what's realistic so much that it would throw you out of the story and that's kind of the point that 
even people who care about the Middle East really don't know as much about it as, as they should, perhaps, if you're going to go doing things like trying to transform the nature of the society there. Um, so it's fantastical in the sense just that I think it would have hardcore historians banging their head against the wall at select moments, but I knew that that, that wouldn't be an impediment to most readers. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I did enough reading so that I would know how much I was, I was twisting things from the way they were. And, and so I would at least, if when I was inevitably confronted by a hardcore story and I could say, yeah, I know, I know that's wrong, but I did it on purpose. Um, and I, I read a lot of accounts of people who had lived in Iraq or, or people who were from there where I could find them. And um, that, again, gave me enough of a sense of just to get me into that intuitive space where I can I can get in the heads of these characters and, and create something that at least to me feels like, uh, you know, a believable portrayal of, of someone in this circumstance. Well, that's actually one of the, the key, <clears throat> I think, requirements for any kind of uh, novel of the fantastic is uh, the the hand-waving aspect mm-hmm. to, to just... Uh, I'm doing this, and it makes total sense. <laughs> Either if you don't do that right, the novel falls apart from the beginning. If you do do it right, you can say completely absurd things, and people will take them for complete uh, reality. I and mean, the trick is basically yes, to get yourself into a headspace where you believe it utterly, and and also just be aware of where the the breakers are. That you know, if you do this, it will it will kill suspension of disbelief for this subset of readers, and. Um, that's sort of what I'm looking for when I'm, when I'm writing a novel like this is just, you know, first of all, get myself to a place where I I know how to write it so that I believe it so that people who are with me will believe it. And then, you know, yeah, where, where, where are the, the, the circuit breaker trips that you want to be careful around or, or just, you, if you're going to go there, you want to do it selectively rather than by accident, um, well, this also seems like a novel that you must have had a lot of fun writing. I mean, yeah, you... I, I have to say that was it was it was a I I enjoyed it immensely. But I enjoy all of my books immensely. I mean, that's if you're going to spend four years working on something, you'd better be enjoying it. And um, that's sort of how I pick the ideas, of the books I want to work on. It's like something that I know once I get in there and 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 actually bring it to life I'm going to have fun in the in the time it takes me to to realize it and uh so yes this was a once I you know once once you get to the point where you know you can you're probably going to be able to pull it off then then it really is a lot of fun when you're writing a book like this in now as opposed to even 10 years ago you're writing for an audience that you can bet a fair number of people will be reading this and go I'm looking that up on the web. Right. <laughs> and so I looked up uh, one of the addresses in this book on the web, and it proves to be uh, it, one in Herndon, uh, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I said, that's a really specific address. I wonder if there's going to be something there. And it proves there was. And I thought that was really, uh, sounds like a, it was a relief, really a fun thing to discover. And, you know, I guess these are a lot of Easter eggs is what they call them. Right? I, I mean, that's funny. I, I I'm wondering that that there the, I I see the 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 you're talking about the Jefferson Davis Pike is that the yeah that the address, um, 
Yeah, that was actually, it's funny that that address that you're looking at is actually a, a conflation of two different things that, that um, there is a Jefferson Davis Highway, I think, in, in uh, Virginia. And then there is a, um, now I've forgotten the, the name of the other, the other place that's the Pike. But I basically, I merged, that, that actually is not supposed to be a real address. That, that is a merging of two different roads to create a highway where a very important thing can happen. And I actually was, I was actually not trying to create an Easter egg there. So it looks like I had one anyway, but it would make sense that if you, if you found it, it would be in Herndon. What was that the address? Uh, the U.S. Immigration Services. Oh, that's great. <laughs> no, that's total serendipity. That's awesome. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting too that lends the uh, the novel a lot of heft and makes us able to take it seriously are you know the the character uh, the characterization portions and I love the the way that you work with uh, uh, Mustafa and his wives with you know the problems of infertility and infidelity the way you weave that together and kind of remix something that a lot of Americans ex- might experience from an American point of view and just make translate it perfectly to another culture. Well, that was an interesting thing that, I mean, my in my very first iteration of the story, um, the action was going to be set mostly in Riyadh, and actually Mustafa was a, a member of the Saud family. He was a, you know, a lesser scion of the Saud family, but... Um, still well-connected enough that uh, Osama bin Laden couldn't just kill him off when he became inconvenient. And uh, this was back when it was still thinking of it as a TV show. And and so initially, I, I actually gave him three wives just because you can do that. And it, the, the arc of the character was going to be that Mustafa was going to be one of these sort of selfishly pious people who can follow the letter of religious law, but is, is also capable of, of twisting the intent. And uh, so he, he'd married three women because he could, and then, you know, all three marriages had ended badly. And part of what the series was going to be was sort of about Mustafa's struggle to become a, 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 real, a real Muslim rather than just a Muslim in, in you know, just following the words, like becoming a, a better human being. And the... The polygamy was sort of a a, a representation of, of what he was trying to move beyond. Um, and then, you know, as the story evolved and I realized it made much more sense to set it in Baghdad and then sort of closing the scope of the novel down a bit, uh, the story down a bit more to make it fit into the arc of a novel, the number of wives dropped to two and Mustafa you know, al-Saud became Mustafa al-Baghdadi. And... There was a point there where I was I was realizing, you know, I was still fascinated by the the institution of polygamy and I wanted to to deal with it, but for for an ordinary Iraqi, it's it's certainly possible to have two wives, but it is less likely. And I had to come up with an explanation for why he would do that because it it I couldn't just say, well, because everybody in the family does that. It was actually a fairly unusual thing for someone to do. And so I needed to come up with a reason why he wouldn't be happy with just one wife. And that was when I sort of twigged onto this this idea that Fadwa was infertile and unhappy about it and, you know, terrified basically that Mustafa would divorce her over it. And um, and Mustafa, you know, was made unhappy by her unwillingness to believe that he loved her just for herself. And 
Um, and so it's actually her that comes up with this idea at first that, well, why don't you, why don't you take a second wife and then you can have kids and then I don't have to worry about you kicking me out. And, um, of course, in the novel, the, the, the thing about this is it's, it's Mustafa wants not, uh, so much children. He wants a, a happy, uncomplicated marriage to sort of balance the unhappiness of this marriage to Fadwa. And so it becomes much more in the, in the fitting of the theme of the novel of, of wishing for a different reality than the one you have. And polygamy offers this, this dangerous way of fulfilling that wish because, of course, when he gets the second wife, it doesn't make him happy. It makes everything worse. And um, so I think that may have, to me, that may be a case where it's, it's probably in some ways a very Western interpretation of of the the perils of polygamy that uh, to to get married for that odd reason but it it still felt like something i could see someone in mustafa's position sort of convincing himself to do this horrible thing and you know and and so i decided to go with that and it it fit the theme of the novel really well and um it, it was a way of examining the polygamy and the, and the possible perils of it. And, and certainly real polygamous families do have this problem with the women are very jealous and very insecure, um, which is why a lot of Muslims will tell you, I mean, one of, the, one of the injunctions, if you're going to take more than one wife, is you're supposed to treat them all equally. And, and one way you can interpret that injunction is to say that there's no way to treat more than one wife. You, there's no way to be fair. So that's sort of a way of saying that you shouldn't do it at all. Um, but of course, people who want to have more than one wife will find a way to to do that. This is a novel too that involves a, a variety of religions, and I'd like you to just talk about how you know your vision of religion informed your vision of these religions. Well, I'm a I'm a Lutheran minister's son, and uh, my mother was a. Uh, the daughter of a, a very famous missionary, a Lutheran missionary in South America, and um, and our house was sort of a theological debate society, basically growing up. So um, uh, there's a branch of my family that's Mormon, and there's a lot of generally good-natured attempts, you know, on the Lutherans to try and, and convert the Mormons back and save them. And so there, there, were, I, I'm very familiar with. Um, theological struggles between, you know, people of different faiths. And so my sense with Islam is that I'm, I'm less familiar with it than, than with, with, you know, Christianity or Judaism, but it's part of the Abrahamic family of religions. And, um, and as I was doing my research for the book, it tended to confirm that, you know, the, the, when I hear Muslims talk about their faith or their relation to God, they don't sound alien or foreign to me. They sound like my relatives. And um, so I, I felt that that gave me the, I know how to write religious characters in general, both conservative, and I know how to, conservative and more liberal, and I know how to write people struggling with their beliefs and their attempts to be good people. Um, and also, if you, you know, if you hang around religious people long enough, especially conservative religious people, you, you sort of can hear people talking about the apocalypse or, you know, sort of dire predictions about, well, these people are going to go to hell. And as long as you're not, you know, as long as they're not actually threatening violence at that moment, you understand how people can say really scary things and, and not really be that scary if you get to know them, that they can still be your your mom and dad or your cousin. 
and how these these really dark aspects of religion can uh, combine with um, more benevolent sides. So uh, basically just the 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 attitude I think a lot of Americans had in the wake of 9-11 that this idea that Islam was this cult of death or that most Muslims are just, you know, a hair's breadth away from strapping on bombs. That always felt wrong to me. It was like Christianity has got its crazed martyrs, too. Um, but they're a tiny, tiny minority. And then you've got a lot of people who like to talk like that, but they're not really all that dangerous. They're just obnoxious. And so I guess I, I just I, I never really bought into the idea of, of Islam as somehow this religion apart. And I knew one of the things I wanted to do with the Mirage is sort of get back to creating this sort of a portrait of uh, just a more comprehensive portrait of, of Islam the way I could do a more comprehensive portrait of Christianity where you can't have just one person representing the faith of billions of people. You've got to have lots of different characters, each pursuing the religion or, or grappling with the religion in their own way. And then you get this more organic portrait. And then the, the, the tiny minority who really are homicidal maniacs like Osama bin Laden, the thing that sets them apart and makes them special is no longer what they believe, but their decision to kill people. And um, the religion for them just becomes a, an excuse, really. And a, so I, I think growing up in a, in a background, in a, a conservative Christian background, and, and being exposed to a wide variety of beliefs sort of maybe made it easier for me to, to get into a mindset of being able to do that for Islam as well. Um, now, I tried very hard to get the theological points that I was less familiar with right. I expect at some point I'll probably hear from somebody that there's some, some point I missed, but I'm hoping that the the general feel of how Mustafa and Amal and Samir grapple with their particular moral and religious issues will at least feel genuine enough to, to real Muslims. And the few I've heard from so far, it seems to, I seem to have done a decent job, but I'll be very curious to hear more about that as, as the book gets wider circulation. I've been speaking with Matt Ruff. His new novel is The Mirage. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.